This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all. From personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, we are talking with Hannah Helms. She is going to be sharing with us what it's like to have a perinatal mood disorder while in a rural community. And there are a lot of people out there who have experienced this and know just how difficult it can be to find the help that you need, let alone being in a small community where other people know or might know what's going on for you and how to manage that. Hannah wants people to understand what it's like to live in a rural community, like what are the cultural norms, how do people interact, and what are the challenges that might be present for people who are living in rural areas who need treatment for a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder, especially when you're a helper who also needs help. Hannah shares with us her story through postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety after the birth of her third. Hannah is a mother of three, a spouse, and a trauma therapist who currently lives with her family in the Pacific Northwest. She experienced peri and postpartum anxiety following the birth of her third child in 2018. At the time, she was living and working in her hometown in Northern California and faced the unique challenge of trying to understand and seek treatment in a rural community. Let's meet Hannah. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Kat. Yes, um, I'm really grateful that you're coming on specifically to talk about what it's like to deal with perinatal mental health stuff um, in rural areas. And there are a lot of people who can identify with this, but really, you know, I don't think there are a lot of places where they can hear somebody's experience that um, might resonate for them. So um, I'm glad you're talking about it and invite you to start wherever you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, dealing with 
perinatal mental health in in a rural context um, was something I don't think that I ever even anticipated, right, until I was in in the thick of it. And I, I know that some people, you know, go into maybe parenthood being able to anticipate that they're going to need to be extra tuned into their mental health. But for me, that was not something that was on my radar. So I was raised in a rural community in Northern California town population, about 3,500 people in Siskiyou County. So um, lots of space, few people. So the town I was in was along the Interstate 5 corridor for people who are familiar with California. So I I think I, with kind of within the spectrum of being rural, I was in a place that had more access. I was in one of the towns that had one of the county's two critical access hospitals. Um, I was also employed there. I think for me, my experience with kind of mental health in the aftermath of having kids was something that was really progressive. I had my first daughter uh, in 2014 and really went into parenthood. My spouse and I really went in with this idea of, of trying to have a very equitable parenting dynamic. I think we we really anticipated that things would be challenging jumping from being single to having kids. And so it was pretty okay. I, I had some some struggles with with breastfeeding and whatnot. And then it wasn't until my second child was born, I got pregnant when my oldest was six months old. So my my two oldest kiddos are are 15 and a half months apart, which is close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great now. It's great now because they're seven and eight and they're buddies, but holy moly. Um, I feel like after my second was born in the spring of 2015, that's when things got really hard. Um, and I was just, I was so angry. Mm. Like I, I, and I didn't even realize, I, I don't think it was until even later after the birth of my third, when I, I started listening to your podcast, I think there was, I don't remember if it was a, a section or a whole episode on postpartum rage. Mm-hmm. And it was like this light bulb went off and it was like, oh, oh, that was like, that was postpartum mental health, right? It was this hindsight yeah. thing. And so at the time I, I just, I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, my my husband was working outside of the home. I was on maternity leave and I was being like this human jungle gym for this toddler with like this newborn. And I remember one day like sitting with my, my youngest child in my lap while my, my older one, Olivia was just like climbing on top of me and I was eating directly out of like a half gallon container of ice cream, like just on the floor of my kid's bedroom and calling my husband and just, and being like, I, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? I like, I'm so mad. I'm just so angry and so mad. And like, I feel like everything is setting me off. And then that eventually subsided a, a little bit. I did, I did attempt to get counseling, but the person that I went to go see, um, I think had no clue at all about postpartum mental health. And I, I went in and they, I think they looked at me and they're like, so you feel like you have anger issues, but you know, coping strategies. Mm. So we just, it was, it was so awkward. It was just awkward. It was like, so this person, I think very much this professional really wanted to help, but just 
was not because their training hadn't necessarily included mm-hmm. perinatal mental health. They weren't connecting those dots. Yeah. And so then things did start to get better. Like that started to lift after a while. I think after we got out of once, kind of once my second child was a year old. Mm. And then so that, whole, that whole time, essentially af- after the birth, you were in in this phase of, of some level of suffering. I was like angry. Yeah, I was just angry <clears throat> and irritable. And I, I remember... <sighs> I remember talking to my primary care provider about it. We had a a family practice doc and he was very sympathetic and compassionate, but again, was not connecting the dots. I was like, well, you're, you know, you have two young children. Like it makes sense that you feel that like very validating, but also beyond, I I needed more than validation, you know? And I think, I mean, validation is so wonderful to feel like we're not like crazy like we're not just making it up right but mm-hmm. at the same time like i think it has to like but wait there's more like there has to yeah. be more and that and i didn't i wasn't getting that and so things really didn't i think devolve for me until my pregnancy and then the the birth of my third child so um i in 2016, I started my an MSW program um, and then got pregnant in the middle of that, That's tough. which is fantastic timing. I don't I mean, I'm sure there's many of, of mm-hmm. the people listening to this have, have juggled like pregnancy and parenthood and, and school and all of that. And um, so I and I was on track to to graduate at the end of 2017 and I was due January of 2018. Mm. Um and I was working. So in addition to doing my my master's in social work, I was also working and had been working for a while mm-hmm. um doing medical social work at the the critical access hospital, which mm-hmm. in rural communities you can do with a bachelor's in social work degree. Oh. I know that's yeah. If you have, yeah, um, for certain, for certain program, I was working. So, um, I was working in hospice primarily. So okay, yeah. there's exceptions within hospice to increase equitable access, yeah. um, that allows for that. So with like, with, of course, clinical oversight of, mm-hmm. of an MSW. So that's what, that's what I was doing. So I was working, doing end of life, social work, and then getting my master's and because of the personality that I am, I decided to do it as quickly as, <laughs> as I humanly could. Uh-huh. So I was taking a full course load. Um, oh, that's so much. Which in hindsight was a bad decision. Like objectively, this was not a wise decision. Um, and then doing practicum, doing community organizing. So wow. I, I did kind of more like education, mm-hmm. um, for the community. Um, and like a lot of organizing. And so, um, and then in the midst of that, there was a pretty significant community tragedy. And for, for people listening to this who have lived in rural communities, I think things that feel like headlines, I I live, I live in a, a city in the Pacific Northwest now, but when like major headlines, like are so personal when you're living in a rural community. And so there was a pretty tragic 
homicide, suicide case. And because of my position, I ended up doing a lot of grief support Uh and it was just a lot. And I started having really bad anxiety, Mm -hmm. like really bad anxiety to the point of um, like having panic attacks before I even had baby. Um, And also- Sorry, what's the spacing of uh, their second and third? My second and third. So they are two and a half years apart. Mm-hmm. And between baby one and baby three, four years and two days. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wow. I And so for context, yeah, also yeah. Mm-hmm. very much the norm in like a rural community. And like mm-hmm. I grew up in like a young Catholic family. So like my siblings and I mm-hmm. are all a year apart in age. Mm-hmm. Like when my my. Mm-hmm. Bless my mother. She was <laughs> pregnant for four years straight, essentially. And oh, so that was like, even though I, I waited until I was older, I waited and, you know, until I was, you know, late 20s to even start having kids. I, um, which again, everybody else was done having kids by their late 20s in, uh-huh. in a rural community. So that was kind of... <laughs> expectation feels like a really strong word that was celebrated Mm, like that was yeah yeah, that was like people were really excited and then Mm -hmm. you know whenever i'd get together with friends we'd just have like a herd (laughs) of small children (laughs) running around um constantly so uh, just uh, again just for my understanding um the you had been having a hard time after baby number two yes it did it get better before you were pregnant or were were you going into pregnancy uh, still trying to cope mm. with what you were going that's a great question i think it subsided i also think that because of the type of person that i am giving myself so many things to do served as distraction mm. or or avoid or it was coping sure. you know stay busy. like mm-hmm. yeah stay busy it's i mean avoidance is a fantastic coping strategy until it's <laughs> not until it's not. not. Um, and so that level, like the level of, I think, irritability, anger, frustration had subsided mostly because my attention was elsewhere. I don't ever, I don't think it was ever actually dealt Mm -hmm. with. And so it was like, it had been put on the back burner. And then I was in this very busy stage of life and I think this dynamic that happens in in many places and especially rural communities is it seems like people who are in positions of being helpers or in in like a human service oriented line of work or people who maybe are just kind of naturally compassionate or um, who tend to extend themselves end up doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I, I don't know if that's something that that listeners can relate to, but in the community I was in, it seemed like I was in meetings for a lot of different things, mm-hmm. but it was just kind of like a shuffling of, of the same groups of people. Oh, um, okay. so, you know, in my, in my time in a rural community, I, I did anti-trafficking work. I did community education around like evidence-based approaches to homelessness, um, and, you know, prevention education and things like that. And it was, generally the same 
mm-hmm. group of folks just mm-hmm. talking about a different thing. Right. Um, right. And so I think that dynamic and that expectation um, was really challenging for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that's that's a lot to hold while you're mm-hmm. very, very busy and have kids. And, and I think just for most people, uh, switching between like um, being the uh, nurturer at home mm-hmm. um, and giving that like close attention and having your heart more open and then going into uh, the kind of work you're describing where it's like really can be really mm-hmm. intense. That's yeah. a lot of switching around you have to do. And sometimes right. you, you can leave yourself a little bit more open in places where you're trying to mm-hmm. not take as much on. Absolutely. And and I think the the other challenge of that is I think in rural communities, because of the number of dual relationships that just mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was one of my the biggest challenges of being in the role of social work, of being a helper is really trying to have strong professional boundaries, but it being nearly impossible because, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm running out to to the store and running errands and I have like a screaming toddler with me, I'm inevitably going to run into someone from work who's been a, a client or who was a patient oh, that sure. I was caring for. And so I think that is also a really significant challenge in, in rural places, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, I think it happens in a professional context, but it also happens, I think, for people who maybe aren't working as, you know, maybe a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or a social worker, where you just, it's a blessing and a curse in some ways, right? Like there's on the one hand, people know you and they they see you. And yet also, if you want to to maybe kind of have some confidentiality or privacy or to be vulnerable with a certain set of people, that doesn't you're in a fishbowl. It's really hard to have that. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have a historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it, and their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has several other high-quality traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin, and for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using OneSkin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the OneSkin scientists found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. 
And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. So yeah. you, I had sort of um, cut you off a little bit to ask about the, uh, more of this context. Um, mm-hmm. But where I had is where we left off before is uh, where you were starting to experience mm. panic attacks. And, yeah. Right. So but back to your internal experience. Yeah, absolutely. Know. So really started to experience a lot of kind of panic attacks. Um, like anytime I would leave my house or a place that would feel safe, mm. doing community-based work at the time, which is what I was doing. And I, I had planned to work up until about like three weeks before my due date. I was doing home visits. And so it's really hard to like do my job if I'm like, sitting white knuckled in the driveway of a hospice patient's house, like, you know, trying to like, you know, do my grounding exercises of like, Oh, what are five things I can see? What are, you know, like, (laughs) you know, really trying to ground myself and, and get through a home visit and, um, kind of the kicker, like the thing that really sent it over the edge. I like, I remember this, um, and I, I think it's important to share this because I think sometimes like I know that a lot of professionals listen to your podcast and like I think we all have like our professional like horror stories, right? Mm-hmm. Of like the worst thing that happened to me. Mm-hmm. I had a panic attack at a patient's house Aww. and I knew I knew this patient. I knew their family. I mm-hmm. had been part of the hospice team for multiple family members and I had driven there in my own car. And my patient's wife drove me home, like to my house. Wow. And I, it was one of those moments, I think, and I'm I'm getting teared up now. And I think it's like, I've like, it's not embarrassment. It's not shame. I think it's, it's really like, there's the self-compassion. Mm-hmm. I think that I feel now of like, mm-hmm. oh man, right. I really had to minimize so much to just survive. And then in hindsight, when I think about it, it's like, oh, it was really, it was really severe. Mm-hmm. Like this was some really, really severe mm-hmm. anxiety. And I, in hindsight, I'm also so glad that it was that patient and that oh. patient's spouse. And because I grew up in a rural community, they like, they knew my family. Okay. They like knew my parents, like every like, that's yeah. the thing. There's no, like, that's the first thing. Like, mm-hmm. are you from here? you know uh, (laughs) right who are your parents and then like i fortunately like my parents are very well loved in my in my hometown so it's like oh you're mike and janie's kid you're fine you can come here yeah ask me all these personal questions no i haven't done my will like oh interesting yeah so and i i'm sure that some people working in rural communities can relate like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's this very much in-group out-group dynamic of Mm -hmm. like you're nobody cared what education I had or what degree mm-hmm. I had, people cared that I was from Siskiyou County. Mm-hmm. That that was my credibility. Sure. Um, and so I survived having a panic attack at a patient's house and having them drive me home in my own car. So like I, like, 
Like they're like, and that also was this turning point for me where I really realized like, oh, I, I need to like, I need to go on, on pregnancy disability leave now, which is a wonderful thing that we have in, in California where I was living at the time. But even with that, it still took a long time for me to be able to kind of get to the place where I was able to accept help. I, another challenge that I had is I I did want some level of anonymity Mm -hmm. and because I was often collaborating with other mental health providers in my community, I didn't want to like go to somebody I was referring my clients to. And, and this was pre pandemic. So telehealth was not as ubiquitous as it is now. It wasn't as accessible and, and people were really, was really challenging to make that happen. I did attempt to see one one clinician um before Nora my youngest was born mm-hmm. and it did not go well i was not familiar with this provider mm-hmm. um because i had not been referring to them so i was like that gave me a small level of comfort yeah, and right. based on the information that was available on their website i was like okay this seems like this person seems like someone who's approach to therapy is something I feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't say anything specifically about perinatal mood or anxiety disorders, but you know, I did you know that was a thing at that point. I knew like postpartum mental health was a thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But beyond that, I didn't know like therapeutic approaches that would be most appropriate. I, you know, I knew like maybe may it was more like this person seems like they have a lot of knowledge in these other areas. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they can help. And it was, it was not a successful session. Um, again, just like that experience after my second was born, um, this person really was not connecting mm-hmm. kind of the severity of what I was experiencing. I had a panic attack in their waiting room. Oh. Um, and they this was not something that was like readily available, but when I sat down for my initial intake with them, they spent a, a solid 15 minutes talking about how they did not believe in the efficacy of medication to treat mental health and that they would not support me pursuing that if that was something that I wanted to do. And wow, I know, I know. And I know Meds are not a good fit for everybody, sure. but they ended up being life-saving for me. Mm-hmm. So that was not a good fit. Mm-hmm. So I didn't right. see that person again at all. Right. So you you're you have a li- really limited availability. Limited availability, and and even even with the providers that were available, the knowledge was not there. Mm-hmm. And so what I ended up doing is I, and then to compound it all, I had a, a fairly traumatic birthing experience mm-hmm. with my third I know I know and so which it was the labor and delivery was fine I am one of those unfortunate people who just has a heck of a time like with kind of that final stage of labor and delivery so I I I was not able to deliver my placenta at all and had to have that like mm-hmm. surgically removed right after baby was born which also happened with my first oh, so okay. Yeah. So, um, zero stars do not recommend that experience. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and so I finally, what I ended up doing is I got to a place where I was seeing, 
I was seeing my primary care provider like once a week just Mm -hmm. because I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm miserable. I'm having panic attacks. I don't know what to do about this. And they were after this. This this is after baby was born. Uh This is postpartum. I was having like weekly visits because what else was there? I did reach out to a family friend who was an LMFT in the Bay Area and just texted them. And I said, do you have anybody who you would recommend who knows something about postpartum mental health who would also be willing to see me remotely? I've got nobody. Mm-hmm. Like there's nobody with expertise here. And um, she was able to give me the name of a friend who like was out of network and we just used like, so was was out of out of network for us, but because of the timing, uh, we had just we just used like our tax return and paid out of pocket for therapy. Mm-hmm. And so I would just remember like I would sit like cross-legged, like had my baby in my arms, who I think all the stereotypes that people have about youngest children are are true of this child. And I think in part, some of what contributed to that was the level of anxiety that I was having because I like could not put her down. Right. And if I, if she cried, mm-hmm. it was this enormous, like the, just the level of like being, feeling triggered, feeling like the, yeah. that internal fight or flight response mm-hmm. was so intense. I could not endure it. And then um, I was still super irritable and angry. And I think I, I realize this is a little jumbled, but an honest, like, to be honest, like this feels very foggy and out of order, like the memories from this time. Oh, but yeah. there were, yeah, there were a few, a few things. I remember at one point what really kicked me into gear to, to reaching out and starting to see a therapist was my husband. I got really mad at him and lashed out at him. And he said, I, I feel like I'm on eggshells. Like you tell me that you want help, but you won't let me hold the baby. Mm-hmm. Like I, like you say that you're doing this all by yourself, but you won't let anyone help. And I don't know what to do. I don't know how I can help you and how I can support you at this point in time. And I want to, mm-hmm. but I can't like, I can't because you won't let me. And so that was, that was a pretty significant shift. So yeah. I ended up seeing this therapist remotely. And so I would just like sit in my bed, like on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was so gracious. I think she was very much able to see like what what a mess I was at the time and how much I I needed. And I think she did a really great job of striking this balance between clearly communicating what she saw as as needs, but also not pushing me to the point of resistance. And so we had a lot of conversation about medication and whether or not that would be useful for me. I signed a release of information so she could talk to my primary care doc. And she just really was willing to like explore my resistance to that. And I think that was one of those hallmarks of being in a rural community is Mm -hmm kind of this cultural value of like being fiercely independent, an inherent distrust of systems, Mm -hmm. like the government of Mm -hmm. tradition, like my family of origin, like 
I think I was like the first person. My mom is like one of eight kids, like I said, like Mm -hmm. big Catholic family, right? So like, I think I may have been the first person in my entire family to like go on antidepressant medication. Mm -hmm. And there was just like this idea of like, no, like you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, by your mental health bootstraps. And then it's (laughs) like, well, that's great, but I can't even find my my boots. So (laughs) it's not going to work. So I had this provider. And then one day I was scheduled to see my primary care doc and he was not available, Mm -hmm. but the, the family nurse practitioner who he worked with was available. And so she filled in and that conversation with her was really monumental and shifting my perspective on starting to take medication. And she, she passed away just earlier this year, but she was Mm -hmm. like, and I never got to tell her, thank you for this wonderful thing that she said. It was like, a, she probably didn't even remember it, but it was just this little tidbit. And she, I remember sitting and I would just like get in the room and I would just start bawling. Right. And she, she just like looked at me with, with compassion, not pity, like mm-hmm. genuine compassion. And she yeah. said, there are so many things to fight for and fight through as a mom. Mm-hmm. This doesn't have to be one of them. Mm-hmm. Like you you could take medication and it would be okay mm-hmm. because then you might actually be able to fight through the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And just that mental shift was so profound. Yeah. And so I really wanted to keep nursing. Um and so I ended up uh low dose Zoloft and then gradually, very gradually upped that. And that was so helpful. Mm-hmm. And it is the, like yeah. that experience of, um, I think it's particularly difficult in my experience anyways, mm-hmm. like on, you know, both as being a therapist and having gone through it myself too, is a- anxiety is part of the reason it's hard yeah. to take medication mm-hmm. or to accept that that could be mm-hmm. possible. It's, it's so hard to get past that point of yeah. the, whatever the resistance mm-hmm. as you, as you, uh, called it but it's also because of the nature of anxiety having to do with fear and fear Mm -hmm. of the unknown uh, and doing something new taking something new it's just it gets wrapped up right into the anxiety Mm -hmm. as well yeah creates a massive massive barrier and sometimes prolongs well often prolongs people feeling better yeah yeah so it Yeah. And I think that's exactly what it was. It was all those what ifs. Mm -hmm. And I think finally being able to verbalize those out loud and hear myself actually acknowledge what those what ifs were. And then to be able to have a dialogue and say, you know, just because I'm saying yes now doesn't mean I'm saying yes forever. And I think that's something that I, I had forgotten and as a, think, as your as a helper you have, as a helper right like yeah, just be in and, and and like all these things that i it's so easy for me to say to someone else but for sure right. like I, I sometimes we're really bad at like <laughs> doing the things we know are the right things to do as helpers mm-hmm. um and i think too an, another piece of it was i had probably so much internalized bias myself mm. around mental health And I think that was very much something that I had to work through. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget, you know, that, that just because I'm in this in, in a capacity as a professional, that doesn't mean that I've completely worked through 
those maybe unacknowledged biases that I still hold on to. And, and that was a huge component of it. And so, yeah. Part, part of that, um, like uh, from family culture or mm-hmm. rural, rural community culture. As I well. think so. I think family culture, I think part of it too was um, at the time I had mentioned, you know, my, my family was big, kind of boisterous Catholic family. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a very long time, I was very involved in kind of a more non-denominational or like evangelical faith-based kind of practice mm-hmm. and and have since kind of left that and exited that. But there's very much, I think, a value in that and this idea that if you have kind of a vibrant living faith, mental health should not be an issue. So it's kind of that spiritual bypassing, I think, that happens of like, oh, well, just like, just maybe you should have more faith or maybe you should pray about it more. Or maybe if you were better at this, I know, right? Like, but, but I think, I I think it's worth saying though, because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining people are going to listen to this, especially people in rural communities. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that if we, it's almost that magical thinking of like, if we just believe we can, we can be fine. And it's a personal failing of some sort, if I'm not able to have enough faith. And so I think that belief system really influenced my resistance to medication, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we would ever look at someone living with diabetes and say like, well, have you just like tried, like, have you just tried to make more insulin? Right. Maybe if you believed more, like you would have more insulin and then this wouldn't be an issue for you. But like, That would be an awful and ridiculous thing to say to someone. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, in particular, you know, I and I think in certain communities, right, like politics and, and faith are really linked. So there's all of these different factors that influence like the way that we perceive the world and our belief systems. And for the environment that I was kind of like marinating in, I think all of those things came together and really contributed to my resistance at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. And I, in hindsight, am like, oh, I, I probably am the type of person who like has always really struggled with mental health. And like, maybe it would have been great if I had started taking meds in my early 20s instead of now. Got it. <laughs> but, yeah, isn't that, um, that's so hard to realize these things and yeah. look back and see how hard yeah. it had been. Maybe yeah. that it didn't have to be quite that hard. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that that really has been something that has been present in like the aftermath of all of this is Mm -hmm. that grief of like, oh, if I had only known, Mm -hmm. like if I had been able to have fair and realistic expectations for myself. Mm -hmm. um, And right after I went back to work, after my third was born, the, the hospital system that I was working for started this really big push on maternal mental health. But and I know. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. And well, how long ago was that? Like, I don't know, mid 2018, 2019. Oh, okay. But there was right. this really big push to mm-hmm. like screen. And it's all it's like it, there's a lot of emphasis on screening. Mm-hmm. And like I also was working on the initiative to like screen for human trafficking. And screening is great, but it does diddly squat if you don't have it. Thing to offer after right. you're done screening people. So and true. so I learned so much 
about PMADS, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, after after I came back from maternity leave, and it was like light bulb after light bulb after mm-hmm. light bulb, mm-hmm. and was it also- was the hospital offering training or mm-hmm. that- oh, yeah? Okay. So we did we did a lot of training, so there was time for that, and because I was part of this, there was like two of us. It's a critical access hospital. So there's like two social workers for the whole hospital. So the two of us got to go and do um, these trainings. We got trained in, um, there's a an East Coast-based model of uh, group peer support, mm-hmm. um, GPS. So I got trained in GPS facilitation, um, did a couple of, um, so I went to a training that was co-sponsored through the healthcare system and mm-hmm. county behavioral health mm-hmm. by PEC. And just was sitting there getting all of this information and again, feeling like, oh, this is so great to know. And then also really pissed off. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know this ahead of time. And, know, right? and then I think the other component too is I think just knowing, just knowing would have helped because then I would not have been sitting there thinking, what's like, what is wrong with mm-hmm. me? Like mm-hmm. I, I am like, I. I should be able to like do that, you know, just shooting all over myself. <laughs> right. Um, yep. And so I think normalizing, like just communicating, like, but this is normal and this is very much a part of what the normal, like transition to parenthood can look like for, for, you know, everybody, like not just, not just, moms but also dads and mm-hmm. um you know everybody not in like non-binary parents and trans parents and like this can this hits across the board for everybody and i think you know looking at it now in hindsight like what what could that have changed in like living in this rural area and i think mm-hmm. knowing i think eliminating that stigma and that resistance to help i think having had the opportunity to like be a better self-advocate, being able to say to my doctor, like, Hey, I'm pretty sure you can do like psychiatric consultation through Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) postpartum support international, you know, just knowing what was available. And then also being able to like have that peer support component, because I think so often because there is an emphasis on like being strong, being independent, being capable and being okay. That comes not, I don't think that's exclusive to rural communities, but I think that is magnified in rural communities. Right. Like you're one of one. Um, yeah. Or yeah. Feel like nobody else is dealing with this. Well, certainly at that time, n- nobody or not uh, many Mm-mm. people knew that this was even a thing. Right. And it hasn't been until now after the fact as i communicate to like friends who i was having kids with at the time it's like oh cool we were just like suffering in silence down oh, the street man. from each other super like, great <laughs> yeah yeah just like mm-hmm. you know um and i think had the idea that this is this is going to be normal and like it's probably smart to just check in with people you know when you're right. signing up for the the meal train like you get meal train requests like mm-hmm every week um you know to just be able to like connect with people and say like you know how are you really doing like Mm -hmm. do you need me to like 
you know, be a sounding board, like, you know, just kind of, I think, I think because peer support can be so helpful, um, really eliminating the barriers to that could have been useful. Sure. So in terms of this information coming to your rural community, you getting training Mm -hmm. and, and other people too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because a lot of partnership was done both between the hospital I was working at and the County, a lot of people who are working in local nonprofits, people who were rooted at the various family resource centers, And I think it would be really interesting to see now what the shift has been Mm -hmm. with kind of the increased availability of telemental health, because I imagine that that has also really contributed as well. Yeah, Um, for sure. Like changing the community mm -hmm. for the better. Yes. Yeah. Making it more accessible. Um, Yeah. I think, and this is like, in reference to something I said earlier, like there's I feel like there's different levels, right? Like there's the ability to recognize and screen someone mm-hmm. for perinatal mental health needs, but then there's the added step of like, so then what next? Mm-hmm. Like, then what do we do to actually treat that and help people with that? And so I think, you know, the things like making making education more accessible um, you know, whether it be for primary care docs and how to intervene and what they can do for their clients, um, making education more accessible for people who are providing mental health care in rural communities. Right. And then, yeah. Oh, go for it. Yeah. Well, well I, yeah, I was, there's, there's this difficulty I find between, so it, it, let me put it this way. So now, now that you know how important it is mm-hmm. and that that feeling of man, it would have been nice to know before I, I went through all of this. Some of the challenge I find is that, in some ways, people either don't want to know mm-hmm. uh, about like this kind of stuff because it's mm-hmm. oh you know postpartum mental health. That's like oh that's not going to happen to me, so I'm mm-hmm. not going to bother. Yeah, like learning about it, as, as well as whatever stigma there is around mental health anyways. And then all of these other layers that you're describing specifically in rural community uh, about, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, If you, I think from what you're saying, if you sort of say something about how you're doing, then people are going to know. Oh Um, yeah. I don't know how fast news travels, but it sounds like it could travel fast. So there's a lot of like, Mm -hmm. nobody, nobody wants to be embarrassed or, or, Mm -hmm be talked about or judged or anything like that. So I just find that one of the barriers is how do you convince people in a rural community Mm -hmm. that knowing about this is important? Yeah. I not that you I'm asking you to answer that question. It's just a question, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I think I think that's a really tough one. I think, you know, some things that come to mind are really trying to tie it into the overall like value of like the the value system that exists that really holds like the idea of a family unit in high esteem and like mm-hmm. parenthood in high esteem and so really putting it in terms of you know just because you haven't been talking about this doesn't mean it's not happening we like we know it is like right. we know it is and why would we not want the people in our communities who are 
parenting kids who are raising up the next generation to be in the best position to do so. Mm-hmm. And so my my thought is really aligning it to those pre-existing rural values. And as much as there is this emphasis and value on kind of independence and self-efficacy and being able to do things without kind of without um, having to rely on other people, there's also seemingly in 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 conflict, but very much this very real idea of like, we take care of each other. Like we show up for one another. Mm-hmm. You know, if you need me to drive my backhoe to your backyard so you can dig a big old hole, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. We've had people do that. Like, sure. <laughs> no, like, like, oh my gosh, you need to like, you need to borrow this. Like you can absolutely have it. Oh, you need help with mm-hmm. so-and-so like, that sounds like more one of the gifts of a, a smaller rural Absolutely. and just doesn't happen in big suburbia or as no, much. No, no. I think the closest I've gotten to that is I'm part of a local like buy nothing group on Facebook. And <laughs> um, it has like, it feels like home. Mm-hmm. It's great. Like I borrowed someone's like food mill the other day and it was like, oh, this is just like being at home. But yeah, you're right. Like, and so I think it is harnessing that. And, mm-hmm. and taking it and and building on it, because I think in a lot of ways that shows up as like, here, I can, I will share my, my material possession with you, or I will give you the gift of time. And I think leveraging that and saying, we need, we need more authentic community. We need that, that kind of ability to show up and help one another. Mm-hmm. Plus this layer of like vulnerability. Yeah, sure. And I think the other thing is like, someone has to go first, right? Mm -hmm. Like in a lot of communities, like someone has to go first and like break that taboo of like, oh, we're just gonna like, we're gonna walk around this elephant in the room. And I think someone has to have the courage to say like, actually, no, this really sucks. Like I, motherhood Mm -hmm. in parenthood is not the gift uh, that I thought it would be. (laughs) Or, um, and that's really tough Mm -hmm. to do. And it Mm -hmm. takes a tremendous amount of courage, Mm -hmm. um, but it's also necessary. This episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready-to-eat Factor meals. And ready-to-eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high-protein and calorie-smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food. Like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. 
And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Are there other things that you really want to hit in terms of a rural community and or your experience within the rural community mm. that we didn't touch on? Because I think you weaved in the stuff you mm-hmm. wanted to talk about. You weaved it in pretty well. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I've been working through that I do want to talk about is acknowledging and leveraging like informal supports. I, I think mm-hmm. immediately getting that kind of really what was intensive education following my experience. There's was, there was this idea of like, Oh, I need to find someone who is certified and like professional to help me. And I think, yes, like I needed someone who was knowledgeable about mental health and perinatal mental health. And I think we could mitigate the need for a lot. I think we could mitigate the severity of a lot of maternal mental health in rural communities if we really leveraged those informal and pre-existing support networks. Because that's what happened. Like that is really the key type of support is it's not, it's not always something that I'm just, I'm thinking back to my own experience as like a social worker. And a lot of times the resources I was connecting people to, to help them out were not like these, were not agencies. They weren't like these formal individuals. It was like, oh, Betty from the church is going to set up a meal train when you get home from having your surgery. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Dan from down the street is going to take over all your yard work. And mm-hmm. oh, yep, Dan called me and told me he's actually going to, you know, it's really looking at what the culture is and what feels comfortable and augmenting and building upon that. And so, because I think one of the things that can happen is, and one of the things that happened for me was there is this idea of like, oh no, it's hopeless. There's nobody here. Like there's no clinicians here who are trained. Like I, I cannot possibly get the level of service that I need because there's nobody here with the intensive training and qualification. And so I think knowing like we can get really creative. You can, you can have, you know, your kids play group. Those moms are going to like come take your toddler so you can actually get some sleep because Mm -hmm. dear God, you need sleep. And, and you're going to like hop on this virtual support group that's based on the East coast, but the time works out because you can do it because you're up at 6am with the colicky baby anyway, you know, like Mm -hmm. it just, I think really the creative and flexibility and ingenuity that's inherent to rural communities can also be an asset. And I think holding those two things at the same time, right. We do need more people who are very knowledgeable and trained and certified in meeting these needs. And just because those things aren't there doesn't mean that there aren't already these entities that can help mitigate the risks that come with having kids. So in maternal health. Fantastic. Yeah. So through all of your experience, you've you've learned so much and you've gone through so much. What was the turning point for you? Like how, how did you get better? Yeah, I, so I, I think, let's see, I think things really started to improve 
with probably about a year and a half postpartum. I think things started to get better. I think some things that helped that I just made peace with the fact that my youngest child was going to like co-sleep with us forever. And so just like, I like, I like, and I I realize co-sleeping can be a hot topic for people, but for us and for like my ability to like not be a panicky, anxious, hot mess and to like also get sleep. Right. Cause like Mm -hmm. I needed sleep. I, I mean, did I install a toddler rail on our king size bed? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. And like, we just lived with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I eventually weaned my oldest kiddo and switched to a different med. Um, like Zoloft was great, but it was not, not as it didn't have the oomph that I needed. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I had great success with Lexapro and still am on that today. And like, it makes a world of difference. I honestly think that getting education and training um, and just kind of getting more knowledge, like having more knowledge about everything really created this level of perspective that I did not previously have. It helped me be a lot kinder to myself and helped me lower some lower some expectations. Uh, and then I think the other thing that I really realized is for me, doing the work that I was doing in a rural community was not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And for me, the the tension between having to be in this capacity as a helper and kind of always being on always mm-hmm. being in, in like this fishbowl and and not really having the space to be vulnerable um, or to not have parts. Like I just like, sometimes you just want to like go get a pint of Ben and Jerry's at 11 PM and with a sweatshirt and not have to wear a bra. And like, I could not do that. <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. I just want to like run out and like be able to like mm-hmm. not worry about running into someone who is going to talk to me. And part of that's also because I'm an introvert, but I not to say, I don't think the issue in and of that was the rural community itself. I think it was my chosen profession in a rural community. And so for us, rather than switching to a different line of work and based on some other needs that were present for our family, uh, we, we moved. And so I'm now in a place where I'm, I'm still in a role as a helper but I'm in a larger community. And so that tension is not there. I think had I switched to a different profession and continued to live in a rural community, that would not, that would have eased some of that stress Mm -hmm. that was really contributing to kind of that overwhelm for me. So those were the big things. I am, I feel like also, cultivating like hobbies like that sounds really (laughs) cheesy but um (laughs) yeah but like giving myself kind of permission to do things that I love or to like try things and then not be good at them has also been really helpful Mm. um so gardening building terrariums lately like I don't like you know just like something I I find for me like finding a creative outlet like taking something and and something about being creative and like taking things that are out of order and then creating order and structure i feel like is so essential even just in parenthood in general right because like oh, right like parenthood is is 
is loosely organized chaos so often. <laughs> so, um, and sometimes not at all organized. No, just straight. No. Up yeah. And then I'm trying to think what else has really contributed. I, I really am fortunate to have like a, a partner, a spouse who is very like compassionate and understanding. Um, and who also was willing to communicate with me like this, like this is not sustainable for us. Like I, I can't be the partner that you need because I don't know how to do that. And also you're not letting me. And so I think being able to work through that was really, really helpful. I also was fortunate enough, like my parents lived in my hometown. And so I had this option of having childcare. And I I also recognize that like my story for a rural community, like I lived in a rural community and worked at a hospital and had access to all of this knowledge. Mm-hmm. And and also I'm I'm telling the story as like a cis hetero white woman in a rural community with who's highly educated. So I I'm for other listeners, like they might be a hundred miles from the closest like hospital or hub of resources or may not have the privilege that comes with being cis or being straight or being white in, Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so I, I also recognize that there were a lot of things that I had, even in my moments of suffering and and struggle that were stepping stones that I could use. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think also really just making like radical acceptance, like just accepting like, oh, this is part of my story. Like I am like, I'm someone who is going to probably need to tend to my mental health in some way, shape or form for the duration of my life. And that's okay. Like that's like, I don't have to find like a definitive endpoint. Like this is, this is like managing a chronic health condition. And a lot of people do that and live with that and it's fine. And sometimes it doesn't feel fine, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) if I can like extend that kindness and grace to myself, then it's, like that element of fighting and that element of impatience and like, ah, I just have to get this sorted out is gone. And it just creates this level, I think, of ease that wasn't there before. Right. For sure. I, lo- I yeah. love that perspective. Thank you for um, bringing it in. It is about managing it and not fighting it or beating it or mm-hmm. being done with it. And um, I mean, it's, well, for a lot of people, it is about managing something long-term. Um, and for some people it's not, but mm-hmm. Um, but still, I think even, even you might not know that it is or it isn't. Um, and so having that perspective, that yeah. kind of um, grace, I suppose, for yourself, yeah. just reduces the the tension and the, mm-hmm. the negative energy around it. So yeah. I, I think it's useful no matter what. Yeah. 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 So I, and, and I think now I'm, I'm kind of my ongoing thing that I'm doing is I'm, I'm no longer working with the therapist who I was working with but I have been working quite a bit on cultivating like my own self-compassion practice. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are familiar with like Kristen Neff and mm-hmm. Chris Germer's work. And so that has just, goodness, even if I wasn't living with <laughs> kind of this anxiety, depression, and I was just like trying to navigate life in the current world, right. I think that would be really, yeah. really useful. For so, sure. Well, yeah. I, th- I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and within your story, kind of giving us the these pearls and, and nuggets of understanding um, what it can be like in a rural community. And what I also appreciate is that you're really able to hold that this is 
your experience in this particular mm-hmm. rural community, and it might be different for um, other people, even in smaller communities. But uh, but I think having, especially for the therapists who are listening, but also for the people who live in rural communities to have this um, this fuller understanding of why they might feel the way they feel is super important. Yeah. So anyway, thank yeah. you so much for coming on and sharing with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again, Hannah. In many ways, this podcast is aimed at people who don't have resources or don't know yet that they need resources. So hopefully, if you know somebody who's in a rural community, this can serve as a resource or at least a guidepost for them to know that help is available, even if it's not directly in their community, they may be able to still find help and support online, especially these days when a lot of resources have moved to the online space. Even if you're not in a rural community, it can be hard to know that help is available. It can be hard to find it at times. So as usual, share this episode with anyone who can benefit. Please do subscribe to the podcast. That's what gets us found and gets this resource to a lot of other people. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, You are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.